Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What the Niche podcast, and I am your host, Andrew Morris. Now, before I get into this episode, I have got to say thank you to everyone who showed their support for the release of my first episode. I can't tell you how much it means to me because I have worked extraordinarily hard to provide listeners with the best podcast I possibly can, Uh, and it's great to see that the work has paid off. And with those shout-outs out of the way, that brings us to this week's niche. The call to serve is at once invisible and always present. And for those who choose to answer the call, for their country, for their fellow man, for themselves, it is the most powerful force on Earth. America's Navy, a global force for good. And as you can tell with that not-so-subtle teaser, (laughs) this episode, my guests and I are going to discuss the Navy. Um, It seems the military may be one of the more misunderstood topics that I've had the opportunity to discuss. Um, I think sometimes these misunderstandings can lead to certain negative assumptions about the armed services and the troops in general. And I think it's important to remember that war and violent action is a difficult thing. And those who are forced to engage with it are the ones who will bear the brunt of the outcomes of the throwing of the spear. It can be easy to forget how taxing it is for those whom we ask to venture abroad. And we may also fail to realize how the feat of returning home can sometimes be the most arduous task of all. My guest today is someone who speaks from a place of experience in regards to the armed services, and he shares his experiences with a great sense of civility and candor. His name is Dusty Sutherland. He is a father, husband, former sailor, salesman, Christian, and one of my best buds on the planet. This podcast would likely never have found a spark in my mind if it weren't for this guy. Our relationship started with me feeling as though he was some right-wing quack who I could never be friends with, and I was irritated by the thought of working with him on a daily basis. He wore Reagan t-shirts, he laughed too loud, and seemed overly confident. And I drove a car with Bernie Sanders stickers, wore heavy metal t-shirts, and to also probably laugh too loud. If you looked in on us from the outside, you would assume that we could never get along, and... At first, I would have thought you were right. But day after day, we did the hard thing. We talked about some of the stuff that people often refuse to discuss. Faith, politics, and our favorite types of chili, which in the Ohio Valley is a big damn deal. (laughs) And through these lengthy conversations, we began to chip away at the facades that others might not have taken the time to chisel through. I found myself not only listening more intently to the things that my friend had to say, but I began to find myself understanding and relating to those things. And over time, it became clear that we had some key differences in our core beliefs. I'm an atheist, and Dusty's a Christian, but we never once judged each other. Rather, we admired each other for the decent people that we both understood each other to be. So when I say I'm not sure this podcast could have burrowed its way into my brain if it weren't for this bond I created years ago with this fella, I mean it. Thus, I hope you enjoy listening to a conversation between two people who are the embodiment 
of the very idea of this entire podcast. Two seemingly dissimilar people who found those common bonds and built one of the great intangible gifts, friendship. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Dusty. Uh, I'm originally from Kentucky. I uh, served in the United States Navy for 10 years. Um, I was what was called a hospital corpsman. That means I was a uh, medic. So my first couple years, uh, I served on an aircraft carrier. Actually, the one that's in the news, the Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, it's my one of my home away from home. So when all that was going down, I was pretty heartbroken uh, and nervous for my uh, my old ship, even though I never served with any of those people on there, that ship becomes part of your life and it kind of ingrains into uh, in your being. And you always think of yourself as a sailor on board that particular ship that you were on. Um, and then uh, for the rest of my time off and on for the rest of my uh, last eight years that I was in the Navy, uh, I was with uh, Marine Infantry. So um, in the Marines, they don't have uh, medics like they do uh, with the army or the air force. Um, and since they're department of the Navy, you get, they get their medics uh, from the Navy. So you actually, uh, join the Navy thinking you're going to sail around and drink beer and pull into different ports. And then, uh, sometimes, uh, your life gets up in it and you end up going, uh, with the Marines. So that's the uh, quick and dirty of <laughs> what I did in the Navy. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, I, you know, I did it for 10 years. It, it was, the biggest change in my life, you know, I played sports. I was a part of a team. Um, academically, I always did pretty well in school and I wanted to go to college, but I was one of those kids that was raised by a fairly strict mom. Uh, she wasn't mean by any stretch of the imagination, just had a lot of expectations for me. And uh, I just knew about the time I was 16 that if I went to college, I was going to go nuts. So I didn't really have a dad in my life. Uh, the only structure that I had is what, you know, what my mom gave me uh, and what my coaches gave me in sports and what the teachers gave me around me. And so I thought, man, I'm going to end up wasting my mom's money if I don't do something different other than go to college, which I felt very unprepared for. And uh, so I uh, did the best thing that I thought I could do for myself, which was join the military. And really, this is no kidding. When I was growing up, Navy movies were always my favorite. There was a movie called Mr. Roberts, which is hilarious with Jack Lemmon. If you've never seen it, you got to watch it. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Love that movie. Shipwreck was my favorite G.I. Joe. I love Top Gun. So I thought, you know what? Let's do the Navy. Looks like, looks like a blast. <laughs> so that's, that's awesome. Um, one of the, the biggest things I think with individuals in the military and especially individuals in the Navy, uh, you're a Navy man. So you understand a lot of the jokes and things that are there. Um, could you maybe clear up some of the misconceptions that you've been presented with throughout your life? Some of the things that people assume about you just because, uh, you know, that was the early career path that you chose. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the biggest thing about the Navy is, is we never, we're always on a ship. Well, that's not always the case. Uh, sailors, you can go an entire 10 years in the military and never see a single ship. Uh, never, never went to sea at all. 20 years. And we have a thing called uh, choose your rate, choose your fate. And your rate is your job. So you could actually choose a job that could get you on the shore for your entire career and never see a ship. So that's, that's a misconception. And I think misconceptions about not just the Navy, but military period 
Um, and it was something that I was thinking about when we started talking about this. And, and uh, you know, I told, I think I told you, Andrew, right before we started this, I said, man, you know, I think about this and I hear all these stories of these people and stuff that people have gone through. And I'm like, man, I am a really boring individual. <laughs> you know, I'm like a, just a, a family guy, but I've had some interesting times in my life. And the biggest misconception that I think, especially going from being in the military for as long as I was in the military, then getting out and coming home and working with civilians is that uh, we're all, um, I really want to put it, crazy, not all there. And I hear that quite a bit. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, you hear of 22 suicides a day. You hear of all these issues that, uh, that veterans have um, just coming back. And they think it's all because they're mentally unstable. Um, and, and they're made mentally unstable by what happened to them in the military. And um, I, I don't believe that's the case. I, I don't think anything that happened to me in the military uh, has made me not not to say that it couldn't. Uh, there are things I'm sure that happen to people because you know there are um, uh, rapes and and uh, other things that can happen to individuals that serve in the military that can cause them to have issues uh, later on. And like myself, I I served in in a combat role in direct combat role on the ground. I do have issues that I deal with, but we're not unhinged individuals. We're not people that you have to be nervous around. We're not people that you have to be scared of. And I think that misconception is something we also put on ourselves because we sometimes tend to think in our dealings with civilians that we have to be a certain way. Um, There's a funny parable to this is that I have a very, and if, if you know me, if you get a few beers in me or if I get off the phone with my mom, how does my accent change? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've known me for uh, years now. And so when I get off the phone with my mom, I grew up way out in the country and my mom's a hillbilly. I'm a hillbilly. But when I talk to my mom on the phone, my, my Kentucky country accent comes way out. And then when I work with a customer, when I'm selling a car or I'm working with people that don't really know me, how do I sound? Like I'm from not Kentucky. Yeah. The Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that I actually consciously try to do because for some reason or another, I don't want people to think different of me. I don't want people to think, oh, well, he's just an idiot hick from Kentucky. He doesn't know anything. Well, it's the same way with the military. There's a lot of us in the military that actually deal with um, how to interact with civilians um, so as to not think we're like, oh, my God, that guy's dark. He's got like the crazy, like the worst humor ever, like he or that guy, uh, that guy's brash or he's just overly confident or whatever. So we actually temper some of ourselves um, and we are not like what we would be like if we're around other military individuals. My wife notices it all the time. Uh, my wife uh, from Indiana never served in the military. Her dad was in the military and he was a police officer. So she knew there was a at-home dad and a police officer dad, but her not being married to me when I was in the military, not knowing military Dusty versus, you know, civilian Dusty, um, she had never really seen that side of me. Mm-hmm. And so when I would get around some of my old, uh, some of my old Marines or some, uh, uh, just another sailor or even somebody in the army or something like that that we served with. Next thing you know, it's like, we're telling these really off color jokes about in really dark humor. My wife's like, what? That's weird. Well, I mean, it, you know, she, she would ask me, she's like, why are, why were you different? I'm well, 
it's, it's a completely different thing. We can actually relax around other military people. Whereas a lot of times um, we're very uptight around civilians and we actually, some of us, not everybody, we all know a couple of people that are in the military that just let it hang out and do what they want. And it doesn't really matter, but there's some of us that, uh, that actually in our minds, we have to temper the way we are. And it actually is very constricting personally. I know I do it. Um, and I'm, I'm different around people that serve than I am that, that, that didn't, uh, just because I don't want to be judged in a way that would make people, other people uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Uh, completely. Yeah. We, we all to some degree do, do what they call code switching. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just something that, that people have to do realistically. Like in my professional setting, uh, I try to be as real as I can with everybody. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that draws, that draws people into my personality that, you know, I'm me, but as a teacher, I can't completely be me in the classroom and tell off, off color jokes and some of the stuff that I might do with my buddies, the people that are closest to me, including Mm -hmm. yourself. I mean, let's be real. If our text messages that we have with each other hit the, uh, the news, we might not ever work again. (laughs) I mean, let's just be be real, man. Uh, man. But I think that's with everybody. So that code switching is important. And I Mm -hmm. try to teach my students that because they haven't really grasped that concept Mm -hmm. of understanding how to act with certain people. They're like, Oh, I don't get why I just can't go into an interview and just talk how I normally talk. Why do they want me to be something different? Well, it's not that they want you to be something different. It's they want you to acknowledge that you're walking into a professional setting. It's not you changing you. It's you having the understanding of that situation. Got to play the game, homeboy. It's just a fact of life. And I I see like the going back to one of the points that you'd made already. I think a lot of, um, the fear that may come from certain individuals who come back, you know, maybe being unhinged or something to that effect. We understand that U.S. people are dealing with a lot when you go over there, things that we can't imagine. I've had conversations uh, with individuals that I'm actually hoping to have on this podcast uh, of things where they've had to make decisions uh, that involve things like shooting a, a little girl. One of my friends said that, you know, the girl was probably no more than 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was coming at the at the group there, uh, whatever the word is, battalion mm-hmm. uh, or a group of soldiers that he had who are his brothers. Those are the people mm-hmm. he's been with every day for eight months, a year, two years. Mm-hmm. And she, he comes at her. He says in Arabic, the command to stop. He says Ogof. it in English, Pogo. Mm-hmm. O- Ogof. 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 Uh, so mm-hmm. he, he said that and mm-hmm. she continued to run at and she was about. Uh, 80 paces out or so and he did what he had to do and come to find out she was strapped with with a bomb and so he made the hard decision and he talked about it so casually Mm -hmm. but you know that it affects him in a way that he's not willing to share with me sure yeah that's um the decisions we make in that setting are the most stressful real I don't know if I've ever said this to you or not but I have a a very I have a favorite uh, saying about stress you know there's two types of stress there's paper stress and real stress 
Mm. Paper stress is some type of paperwork or a bill or something that comes in that just stresses you out. And that's not, not to make that any smaller or not to say, well, that's not that big of a deal. It's stressful, but it's a different type of stress. If you have a bill that comes in and you can't pay it for a month, it's going to bother you. It's going to keep you awake at night. It's going to gnaw at you, but eventually you pay it off. And a year from then, are you ever going to think about that bill? You couldn't pay that one time. Probably not. Probably not. It's probably not going to get at you that much. But in those settings, I, I've had to do it. I, I've, I've known hundreds of guys that have had to do it that will make um, a stressful decision that happens in an instant that will stay with you uh, for the rest of your life. And, and I mean, it could... Uh, stuff like that creeps up on you, man. I, you know, I could be in the middle of a conversation with a, with a customer and it just creeps in the back of my mind. And then why am I thinking about that now? Why is that an issue now? Why did that happen? The, the brain's a crazy thing. And it makes you face things that you push down and, and something will come up in your head and, or flash in front of you. A car will move. Somebody will move. Somebody will say something. And then, uh, bam, a thought comes up. And then all of a sudden now you're in a different place or you're in a, uh, you have a different feeling. And I think the, the one thing that I want to come out of this conversation and the thing that I, that I pray that, that people uh, understand is that uh, there's stuff we don't know how to talk about and we're not going to talk about it unless you actually sit down and, and care enough to pull it out of us. And so it's not that we don't want to tell you. It's not that we don't want to talk about it. And it's not that, um, that, uh, we're more afraid that you're not going to care enough to judge us the way we need to be or, well, you're not going to care enough to, to hear us out on why we had to make that decision or why that happened and why it bothered us, why we still think about it, why it still makes my day miserable, why it can make my week miserable, uh, why it makes it hard to sleep at night, why it makes me uncomfortable to be around large groups, why it makes me uncomfortable uh, to um, deal with certain people or why it makes me, uh, why, why I will just be driving and then all of a sudden just start, you know, panting heavily and, you know, grab my shirt or, or just need to grip the wheel a little tighter. Um, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And so unless you, unless we feel that you really care, uh, we're not going to talk about it. And you're always going to think, man, he's got something really wrong with him. I mean, that's, there's a stigma behind it that we need people sometimes to, to know that we're going through stuff, but also care enough to say, if you want to talk about it, I'm here to talk about it. Uh, I'm not going to judge you. And um, I just want to understand what you're going through. And just sometimes it's stuff that we haven't talked about since it happened. I mean, it's stuff you won't tell a doctor. It's stuff you won't tell anybody because you're not 100% sure it was the right decision. You're not 100% sure that it was, um, could it have gone a different way? Uh, you know, there's, um, it's funny because everything in my life since I was in infantry or even before that, even when I was on the ship, had to do with a flowchart principle. We've all done flowcharts. You come to this decision-making point, you either go left or right. 
that's how my entire mind has thought since I was 18 years old. Actually, probably I, w- I joined when I was 17. I had to have my mom sign permission slip, basically, for me to go on this field trip to Chicago and uh, spend the rest of my adult life in the military. And and it's um, what I thought was going to be the rest of my adult life. And and um, so from about the time I was 17 years old, I think either a go left or a go right. It's all decision make decision-making principle. And, and you have to kind of flow chart an entire issue out in your mind. Okay. Well, if this happens, how am I going to do this? Okay. Well, if this happens, how am I going to do that? And man, there's only so much you can prepare for. There's only so much you can put in your mind and only so much you can think about. And, and you can't, um, after the decision's made, you can't dwell on it. You can't think about it. You can't, you got to go on to the next thing. Um, you know, it's another principle in car sales. You know, you have a bad customer that, that, makes you angry and you can't sell a car or whatever. And you just got to go next. All right. Clear your mind and go on to the next thing. Stuff it down. and We'll talk about it later. Um, Well, at a certain point we have to, we have to ask ourselves if, if what we're asking soldiers to do with that decision-making process of things that they're going to have to live with forever. mm -hmm. Is it realistic? Because we're starting to see, as you mentioned, some of those suicide deaths. There's mm-hmm. one that's, I mean, the boggling statistic of like one every eight minutes or something like that yeah. uh, of individuals that are committing suicide. How many other individuals uh, now that we understand and have the current tar- terminology for it, uh, mm-hmm. PTSD, which mm-hmm. we've had for a long time. If you go back, the terminology or the vernacular changed. They called it shell shock uh, and mm-hmm. things like that before. So we've understood that it's been a thing for a while. Yeah. So at what point do we say to ourselves, we're going to train you to be a killer, mm-hmm. someone who's going to go over and defend uh, our cause at any cost um, and train mm-hmm. people to do that and then ask them to come back and say, okay, now that thing that we taught you, uh, we want you to turn that off. Yeah, this is, this is not a new thing. Uh, you know, I yeah. remember... I, I was reading a study, uh, this has been years ago, and it's a very funny thing, but uh, they wanted to test how effective muskets were. And this was in the French military, like under Napoleon, you know, a couple hundred years ago, they, they hung a white sheet and drew a black line across this white sheet. And they had everybody get up on a line. And they're like, shoot between these lines. And the accuracy of the one shot across was incredible at this range. So Napoleon was like, all right, at this range, this is what the accuracy is. When they fire this volley, this is how many people I should expect to die. But then when it all came down to it and they all marched out there, that number was like woefully off. Like way off. And they're like, why is that? Why was, why is it okay when we're sitting here and we're in training and we're shooting to these, to these, through these two boxes, it's because a lot of these people, they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to make that decision. You know, I, I'm, I, I joined to be a corpsman. I joined to help people. I joined to work on people. I, I wanted to, you know, save lives. And if people were sick, I wanted to heal them. And if, if they were uh, hurt, I wanted to fix them. I wanted to get them home, you know, to see their kids and their mom and everything else. And sometimes we're never trained as corpsmen to have to live with that decision that a regular 0311 or an infantry guy would have to live with. You don't, you know, and when it has to come down to do it, you know, you, you think about it, but then you try not to think about it. Okay. Well, I'll just do my best. I'll just 
shoot and hopefully, you know, hope for the best and hope the rest of the guys have to do it because I, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny thing that we all say between each other because, you know, we're like, Oh, anyone calls myself more work because even if it's the enemy, if they're wounded, I still got to go out and fix them. And it sucks because that's the, that's a decision that you have to make as, uh, um, I mean, doctors don't have to make that decision. Nurses don't have to make that decision. EMTs don't have to make that decision, but you got these guys that go through EMT and nursing school and they're the closest things to a doctor that most Marines are going to have within a couple hundred miles. I have to make that decision. How do you live with that? You know, how do you, how do you overcome that? And it's, this is, this is a funny thing. Cause you know, you, or do you, it, well, no, sometimes maybe the answer, you know, because we're such a defeatist, we have a defeatist attitude as people. We're like, mm-hmm. this is something, this is a problem. We will overcome it. Uh, let's figure out a solution. Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe it's just something that uh, yeah. is ingrained in you and you just have to live with it and you have to deal with it. And now this is the new you. And yeah. we have this, this, this idea of what normal looks like. Sure. And is it realistic? Isn't it, is it definitely realistic to consider, you know, individuals that were in the military to come back and fit into that box of our definition of normal? Is that yeah. even fair? Yeah, no. And it's, it's a very strange thing too. Cause you know, I watch, you know, my, how my political leanings are, it's, and, and you know, how, um, my faith and how I, raise my family and how I feel about stuff and what I, cause you know, you and I talk about a, a myriad of stuff. Um, and, and, and man, I could go on about just a thousand different topics about, and, and almost everything that I talk about in my life, whether it's my work life, my home life, uh, my faith, even my politics was driven by my experiences in the military, all of it, everything. Um, as a matter of fact, if a parent is listening to this, I want them to understand they are not the same kid that left home. There's bits and pieces of them in there, but they're not the same. You, they, have, they don't have the same cares. They don't have the same uh, things that make them laugh. They don't, I mean, that's, that's a struggle for people that knew you prior to the military. If, if, if I run into somebody that knew me before the military, they're making jokes about things that I did or happened in high school that but I can't remember that. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, maybe. Sure. That could have been me. I have no idea. It's not me no more. That's, um, that's really true. I had a friend in high school who uh, was legit my best friend. I mean, uh, between him and the, the guy that I'm currently staying with, I hung out with them every day. We played ball for three or four hours after school every single day. I had mm-hmm. keys to his car. He's like, yeah, dude, go, go ahead. He had keys to my car. Yeah, dude, take it. It's fine. You know, we're 16, 17. That car was the most important thing in our lives. And we mm-hmm. trusted each other enough to be like, yeah, dude, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And he left for the military. I uh, was an MP. Mm-hmm. And his mom was very, uh, very liberal person. Um, very liberal politics. Very, um, very thoughtful, caring person. Really socially liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he left very much uh, similar and followed in her footsteps, very socially liberal and came Mm -hmm. back a legit conservative Republican Mm -hmm. had found God while he was gone. Um, Mm -hmm. When he came back, he, we hung out. Of course I was super excited and I was like, who is this person? Mm -hmm. I literally barely recognized him. I still loved him. I still cared about him. 
and we don't really talk. Uh, we haven't really talked since he come back. Uh, I don't know if um, he doesn't feel or if he feels upset that he can't be the person that I want him to be mm-hmm. because I, I was su- such a fan of the person that he was before he left. I'm not saying the person that he is now is bad. I don't have any issue with him. Well, I mean, we got along. We hung out a couple of times, but yeah, you, you hit it on the head, man. He came back so different. And then, uh, you know, I've had that happen with a couple friends who've come back, you know, very changed. And it, it, honestly, you have to wonder what kind of person <laughs> are you if you go and do get involved in something like that? Because one would think the majority of the people in the military are going to have something that happens to them that's relatively unsettling. So if you go and you come back completely the same, hmm, what kind of human are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Cause I am nowhere near what I was like when I was in high school. At least I don't think so. I, I, I don't know if I would recognize myself. Uh, I was sitting here having a conversation with me. I don't know if I would be, if I would be able to even like me from high school. I have no idea. You know, even uh, it, it's, it's funny. I, I'll bring it up with the kids. Even my, I had a previous marriage and my children from the previous marriage are, uh, <laughs> it's funny cause who I am as a civilian now with my two younger children and my older children, uh, especially my oldest daughter that's, that's in college. Um, she's like, dad, you are so different than you were when I was a kid. And uh, it's, it's funny because she said, uh, I can see that you, uh, try to be different than you were. And, uh, and this is coming from, you know, this is coming from uh, a young adult. And I don't know if you've ever met Alexis, but my, 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 my daughter that's at Columbia, she's uh, an amazing, an amazing woman. She's a wonderful, wonderful person and um, extremely loving, extremely caring, wants to be an educator for all the right reasons, you know, grew up uh, being a military kid, moving to and fro and just had to make friends. And, and one thing I remember telling her that stuck with her forever. And it's so funny is I remember her saying that she only had one or two friends. And I said, Oh, that's great. And she, you know, she, she was taken aback by that as a, as a kid and said, I said, yeah, it's great. I mean, if you have one or two friends, you're doing awesome. I said, why would you need all those friends? That's just too much trouble. And, and I told her, I said, you know, if they don't like you for, for you, they can basically eat fish heads. Who cares? You know, if they, I said, if they don't like you, move on. And uh, I said, you know, family's family and people that want to be around you and work with you and play with you. Those are good people. And those people like you because you're you and that's it. And that's all that matters. And so here she is as a 20 year old. And she's like, yeah, you told me that when I was a kid. And you know what? That's, led me through relationships and that's led me through, you know, everything is people, if they like me, they like me. If they don't heck with them, I don't have time to fool with them. And it's something I learned when I was in the military, you either work with me or you're against me. We, we have this saying, uh, with, um, uh, in the Marines, especially they say no, no better friend, no worse enemy. There's no in between. That's really it. Um, I have sayings from even General Mattis that, that you know, I, I met General Mattis. I served under General Mattis uh, in the surge in 2007. And, you know, he said, be professional, be polite, but have a plan to kill everybody you come in contact with. Um, <laughs> that sounds insane, like, but I, I, I do understand I know, where I know. he's coming from. And it, right. 
Yeah, you have to. I, I mean, this is a mindset that as a civilian, you cannot put yourself in until you have trained or, you know, you, you've trained and been broken down and then brought back up. And then you wear a uniform every day the same way all the time, constantly. You train the same way as you fight. You do the same things. Everything's the same. Everything is just trained for this one moment. And then you have a guy that stands in front of you. And we greeting. You know what a greeting is? Like if I say, Hey man, what's going on? And I wave at you. That is not a greeting in the Marine Corps. You know what we say mm. to each other? <laughs> kill. Oh, I mean, kill. Or, uh. I mean, it's all grunts and farts and just it's, it's tongue in cheek type of thing, but it's an all, it's, it's a very, the mindset is different because your mission is different. Your job is different. What you have to do and what people have to realize what we've been put in charge of is providing you a warm blanket of freedom. And I say that as a, you know, to try to be funny, to break, break it up a little bit, but we believe it. We eat it up. I mean, it's, it's. Don't you have to? Because if, if, because I mean, uh, yeah. you're as strong but as you your belief the, in, in, in the goal. Yeah. And it. The biggest honor that I ever had is, is when another Marine called me doc. And, and doc is a, is a term that they use is, is like a term of infection. Like they call you doc, like you're doc. You're a corpsman until then which is what my job was. But if they liked you and they trusted you, you were called doc. And these Marines, they wear that Eagle Globe and anchor with a lot of pride because they earn that. That's never taken away from them. Once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. And they allow you as a corpsman to earn a badge that, that says that you served with the Marines. And they allow you to wear that. You have to get their permission to wear that. And man, that is a big deal, but you have to have the same mindset as them. I don't care if you're a medic or not. Your, your mindset is, um, in, in the Navy, we say ship, shipmate self. You always put yourself last. Everything that you, you do is last. It's always, you don't even think about what to eat. You don't think about how to, all you have to think about is, okay, I've got to take care of myself because if I take care of myself, I can take care of the guy next to me. That's the closest you think of, of thinking about yourself. Yeah. And imagine now going into a society where people think about what's best for themselves over anything else first. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing for us to uh, put into our minds. So we look at people that think like that as, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. I don't want to have anything to do with that, yeah. but we can't avoid it. How am I going to avoid it? What am I going to do, live in a, a mountaintop like uh, – you know, some hermit or something like that and only deal with the people that I want to deal with. You know, I have relationships with people that I want to have relationships with because I don't have time for any other relationships other than the ones that I want to have. And that's something that I, I picked up from the military. That's something that I've always, that's always been ingrained. Well, I've probably got it from my mom more than anybody, but uh, it's hard for a military person to come back and deal with civilians and what they think is stressful, what they think is important and what they think has to be done right then or, or that think about themselves and nobody else. And it's almost impossible for us to look at those people and what happens out there and not think a certain way, not feel a certain way or not try to just avoid all of that nonsense and come back different because none of that stuff is important. None of that stuff matters. The only thing that matters is the team. The only thing that matters is the mission. And that's it. 
And then now, now stick somebody that has no team and has no mission into a world that has no team and no mission. What are we supposed to do? What do I do? Well, so why do you think, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, oh. And it, and it well, goes against natural human instinct because going back to what you had said, like, and I always tell people this as like, it, it's, it's okay to worry about you mm-hmm. because there is no yeah. person on this planet for a normal person. And, it, and this goes against exactly what you, you had said, but no person in this world is more important than you. Because even if you're a father, because certain well, parents will be like, well, you're not a parent, so you don't understand. The hell I don't. Because guess what? If you're not mentally healthy and if you're not healthy in general, mm-hmm. you can't take care of your kids to the best of your ability. If you don't take some time for you, sure. you can't possibly be a good parent. It's, Until at some ahead, point, you have to understand that, you know, and we, we talk about this in education quite a bit. We talk about mindfulness and ways that we can think about decompressing, especially right now, because Honestly, educators aren't off right now. I might be sitting down talking to you, but my phone is two two inches from the screen, and I'm getting uh, look at that. I have two new messages from my students, so I'm constantly on call mm-hmm. because those students are working whenever they want. I might get a message at three o'clock in the morning, and as a teacher, I might say to myself, "I'm outside of my work hours. I'm not going to look at it." Mm-hmm. Is that really going to happen? Mm-hmm. Of course not. Yeah, I'm one swipe away and I see what the kids said. And then I'm like, well, I'll, I'll answer that in the morning. No, I won't because it'll eat at me and I won't sleep. So sure. Uh, things change. It's, 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 you have to be able to, to change with that. But I think the, the change that we ask of military people is probably one of the most difficult ones because it's literally designed to break you down and build you into the thing that they want. Because like you said, thinking about solely about the mission and solely about the person sitting next to you is unique. Mm -hmm. That is not something that's ingrained in people from the get-go because we are selfish because nothing matters more than my survival. But the military changes that. And that's why I see it from being a parent, and I think we've had this conversation about this, that I don't make my kids share. Yeah, and simple I, I'm glad you're talking about this because this is this is a very unique idea. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and explain this, and I explain my my thought behind it is, um, interpersonal relationship building is one of the key things in a young child's life. It's very important. It's important for children to be able to learn how to build relationships. I think early on. And I don't believe forcing a kid to share a toy that's important to them when they don't like that other kid and have no reason to like that other kid, that they're just going to end up not finding a reason to like that kid and not being able to build a relationship with more people because somebody's making them share. So I've always thought, even I thought, man, that is just the craziest thing because when we're in the military and even as an adult, I noticed that I, I only helped the people I wanted to help and I wanted to help everybody that I came in contact with mm. for the right reason because I wanted to make sure they got home to see their family. I wanted to make sure that 
whether they liked me or didn't like me, uh, or we had some kind of falling out over whatever reason, you know, I was always going to be there for them for the right reason, because I believed in them and I believed in the mission. And I thought it was important that they got home. Well, turn around to, to raising kids. And I see these kids that pick on other children because they don't have toys or they pick on other children because they're poor or they pick on other kids because they're different because they don't have a reason to get to know that person to that other person because everything is built around a forced mindfulness that, Oh, that kid doesn't have that toy and you have that toy. So share that toy with that kid. Mm -hmm. And that's a nice thing. Well, it makes that other person feel like crap. Like, why, why should I have to share with this kid? He's, he's a jerk to me at school. Why would I want to share with him? Or he's, you know, whatever. If my kids want to share their toys with you, they like you. And I'm going to tell you right now, they work really, really hard to build relationships with other kids because of that. You've met Jackie, right? Quite a few times. How nice is Jackie to everybody she comes in contact My wife with. is absolutely in love with your kids. <laughs> and as I am, I, I love them. Yeah. It's, it's very important because when you come over to the house, if, if, they, if I like you, they instantly know, okay, well, if my daddy and mommy likes these people, they're good people. And I'm going to want to share something of mine to them. I'm going to tell you right now, it is like the number one honor in my house is for either my son trip or for Jack, uh, my little girl, Jack to, to give you one of their toys. If they give you one of their toys, I'm like, bro, you made it. <laughs> I mean, take that toy and put that on a mantletop, man. Take a picture of that. Cause that's a big deal. That's a big deal in our house. That's a big deal because that means you've now entered a circle of trust with, with a seven year old person that doesn't trust everybody, shouldn't trust everybody, but has to, work with that person to learn what that person's like and to learn what's important to that person and to build a relationship with that person for the right reason, not just because you have a toy that they like or vice versa. It's just really important to me that, uh, and I think it's something that's lost on kids today is building relationships. And I think that's where a lot of bullying comes from because they don't know how to build a relationship. They don't know how to have to get along. They don't understand they have to get along. It's, I have, <laughs> I think if a military person coming out of the military that, that leaves does not find a mission in their life, whether it's getting up in the morning and being the best salesperson or being the best nurse or being the best whatever they are now, um, and then focusing their entire life on that mission, making sure that others around them are brought up through that mission, if they don't, what are they going to do with their life? How are they going to put it together? I mean, what, what are they going to do? What are you going to focus on? What are you going to work towards? What are you going to train to do? Mm. Who are you going to train? What do you have? You have nothing. You have, I mean, we go, it's a tribal mentality that everybody in that, I don't like to say the word team because we're not a team. A team, a team is made up of individuals. A tribe is made up of people and parts of a family that have been welcomed into, have been accepted and they have an individual job that if they fail at that individual job, whether it's planting corn or killing that deer over there, the rest of the yeah. tribe doesn't make it. And that's the difference between a tribe and a team. If, if you're in my tribe, that's a bigger deal than being part of my team. I mean, once the game's over, yeah. we go home. Well, you could, 
When you talk about tribes, I mean, that's probably one of the things. And Sebastian Junger talks about that in his book, Tribe, where he talks about a lot of individuals Mm -hmm. now suffer uh, from PTSD and things of that nature, just outside of the military as well. And there's so many people because they lack that sense of fulfillment. So when you talk about that, that pieces of a mechanism of survival, that you, that was what you did. You woke up every day. You didn't have a fucking planner. You woke up and you're like, well, what do we do today? And they go, Oh, survival. So, I mean, you, you had to till the fields or you had to hunt. You had a job. Everybody knew what their role was. And now, we have so many people yeah. that are kind of existing in this aimless lifestyle where they don't necessarily know what their purpose is. They might have a, a quote-unquote job that doesn't give them any sense of fulfillment. They're punching a clock. They're going and picking some shit in a warehouse, and then they come home with no yeah. sense that they accomplished anything other than they made a few bucks that day. And that's terrible. Yeah. You know, uh, to kind of fall back on that from, from a car sale standpoint, uh, I, I always tell my salespeople we're chicken farmers, you know, and if you, you get that egg and that's the customer, that's, that's, that's the customer you just greeted as an egg. And if you take care of that egg and you do everything right by the egg and you give it warmth and you give it the protection that it needs at the end, that egg hatches into a chick that you then have to continue to take care of, but that will eventually yield what more mm-hmm. eggs, which is more chicks. <laughs> so, I say this is a joke, but we're actually farming chickens. We're, we're selling a customer, one customer a car, but that can lead to six other car deals, which is going to continue my business, which is going to make me more money. But you have to plan that mission out. Here's the thing. You know, you have to remember that you have a mission. Whatever that mission is, if you don't get out of bed with a mission, go back to bed. I hate to say it because you're just... You're getting on the dating dog do? and shit right now. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? But you, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have an action plan. You've got to sit down. I have. I, I write out what's called a map, a massive action plan every day. I got things that I have to do. If I put that list, if I, if I get that list of things I have to do, and I miss one thing, it's mm. a failed day. I got things that I should do, things that I could do, and something that I need yeah. to stop doing. I write that down every day. And if you don't, nobody else is going to tell you what your mission should be. Nobody else is going to tell you what you need to do. There's a, a, a funny saying in the, in, the, in the Navy. All you have to do is show up on time in the right uniform and do what you're told. Everything else has been written down. Navy's been around for 200 years. It'll be around when you leave. It's going to be fine without you. This thing will keep on rolling. Why does it keep on rolling? Because somebody a long time ago put out this mission plan, and this is what's supposed to happen, and this is what we're supposed to do. They trained leaders, and leaders continually trained and built up the people under them so that they could become leaders, so that that could move on, and that the Navy could live on in those before us and continue to go on and continue to protect the world and and continue to carry out the mission and continue to do the right things. And, and I always, I never, ever once did I ever second guess what I was doing when I was in the military. Never once did I ever go on a mission and go, why are we here? Mm. What are we doing? I never did that. Um, and I'll tell you why I never did that, because I, I felt in my heart of hearts that what I was doing was absolutely the right thing. Because I, I got up in the morning, I prayed that I would do the right thing, that I would know what the right thing would be. And I 
didn't have to think about much else that I always knew that we were looking for somebody that was trying to hurt us or hurt civilians. And I always knew that we were there to protect uh, people in Iraq. Like I, I never fought an Iraqi person, not once. And I, this is another common misconception. I, people that served around my time, we, we don't hate Muslims. I don't hate Muslims. I got nothing against a Muslim. I don't care. It, the only thing that I worry about at that point in time was protecting other Marines. And I had Marines that were Muslims. I served with Muslims that were Iraqi army, Iraqi police officers. Um, I wanted them to get home to see their family just as much as, 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 um, as anything else. And the thing that just absolutely kills me now is to think that a lot of those guys that I worked with and helped and saw their kids. I mean, saw these little Iraqi children that were happy to see their daddy come home because, you know, this, this guy from America helped train him or, or walked beside him and made sure that he was okay and got patched up. And then they would say, thank you. And they would, I mean, we had a guy that got hurt and we fixed him up and his wife and kids made us food. And, uh, he wanted to, he wanted one of our Marines to marry his sister, just all kinds of stuff. That's I mean, this is how big of an honor it was to, to be in these, in, in, in Iraq and serve with those people and help those people and help them try to build their own life out from underneath a dictator. I, I never once ever second guessed why I was there. And I've never thought about that. Even today, I don't, I, I do occasionally hear about stuff that happens with, you know, you know, Bush did this or Cheney did that or whatever. I can't dwell on that because I saw the look in those children's eyes when their dad came home. And when ISIS came through a few years ago, I remember watching TV. This actually is going to bother me a little bit, but I remember watching TV and they actually said the areas where I was serving and the people that they were killing. And I mean, these, they would go into people's houses and if they had pictures of themselves standing around with Marines, they killed the entire family. So you think about this, there's a pretty good chance that somebody could have gone into somebody's house, saw a picture of me standing with their dad and, and took the dad and took the kids outside and just slaughtered them for no other reason than I was in, I, there was a picture of me in that house. That bothers me. Why is that a thing? I can't fathom. Why anybody would not want to make sure that never happens anywhere. Why wouldn't you want that to happen? Why would you not want a guy like me or a guy like Tony or a guy like Jocko to be out there to ensure that somebody doesn't walk into your house and see a picture that gets you killed? That's... That's something, man. And, and you got to think for a guy like me to come home and not have something to fight for and, and something to find important and to something attach ourselves to, there's probably a pretty good chance I'm not going to make it out of that alive. You know, you make it home to come home to something and just for somebody to say, thank you is fine. That's nice. But for somebody to give me, a purpose is a much bigger deal. And that's what you, you search for after that is a something to 
attach your name to, something to attach your legacy to, uh, whether it's, it's raising good kids to make sure that they are friendly and, and they're good Americans and great adults and they do something for society other than just take, you know, or, or, or whatever. You just want them to be good people. And, uh, and for somebody to say, um, you know, like that, they'll say, I, I just want somebody to say, you know, that Trip Sutherland or that Jacqueline Sutherland, she's a good person. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal for me. You know, my mission was to ensure that those people in Iraq didn't get hurt and that they could build their own society and, and uh, have their own government and family and do their own thing. And that, I, I believed in that. I still do. And it was tough. I thought I was fine <clears throat> right up to that, that I had, had got through the worst parts of what bothered me um, from the time I was, you know, 17 till 27 years old. You know, I'm 28, 29, 30, 34, 35 years old before um, it, it came up into my face again and was like, these people that you protected, you couldn't protect them. They still got it. That sucks. That really sucks. And nobody likes, nobody likes to feel helpless. You know, you're sitting at home 10 or 2000 miles away and knowing that there's nothing that you can do. Nothing you could do. And, and the, the thing that was the, the toughest about it, I got a real chip on my shoulder for, and, and really upset. Um, and, and there's a lot of guys that felt the exact same way because our, our government at the time, let it happen. And I believe let it happen. And I believe, I don't believe they thought or had the forethought to make sure it didn't. And I'm still about half hot about that more so than anything else. And people say, well, well, shouldn't you be mad about, you know, shouldn't you be mad at Bush for, for not even, for even starting it? And I'm like, well, no, because you have, no, I mean, (laughs) said, you know, I told them, I said, when we were in, when we were in Afghanistan, we found munitions that, that were used on us that we knew came from Iraq. How do we know they came from Iraq? Because they were American munitions that we'd be using against us. And so how did we know they came from Iraq? Because we had the receipt where we sold them to Iraq to use against Iran. Yeah, back in the 80s. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, right. So, you know, when you stop being able to sell oil, which is what had happened to Saddam Hussein, he was, you know, you couldn't sell oil. He had to sell something. So what did he have more of than oil or as much of as oil or the second number one thing he could sell that was expensive? Mm. Weaponry. And so he started selling stuff. How are you going to control that? You got to go in and stop it. You know, you're supplying another area and people are going to say, well, Saudi Arabia is doing the same thing. I absolutely agree about that. Not to get too far down the rabbit hole about all this stuff. But yeah, if you were to ask me who I believe is the the number one, number two threat in the world to Americans right now and to our well-being, number one is probably Russia. Number two is probably Saudi Arabia, unfortunately. But that's that's (laughs) for a different topic. Well, you know, yeah, it's a whole different can of worms, but I, I, I don't want to derail this too much, Yeah, but it, no, I Sorry. get it. I, <laughs> I appreciate, um, it's, it's amazing how this format for me has created 
uh, a space where people have felt it's, it's interesting in just a matter of a couple of days that people have been so open to be vulnerable. And I, I greatly appreciate that yeah. and you sharing that because I think those are the things that are going to relate to other people that are going through some of the same things, uh, feeling guilty or feeling uh, sad or feeling helpless. And I, th- I think that's really going to help other people, you know, who have served or, you know, individuals that are going to relate to it for whatever number of reasons. Um, but I knew when I had you on that I had to have you tell this story that you told me because I thought it was really interesting. And I know you heard the podcast with the, uh, the Navy pilot on Rogan who had talked to, who had talked about, who had talked about the Tic Tac. Um, and oh. that's, that's what the Navy pilot, uh, whose name do you have his name? It's, God, I can't remember. I, I, there you go. Okay. And I, don't know how I remember <laughs> that one. Buddy. That one's a crazy. Um, but when yeah. he was talking about all that, you know, and I had relayed, I went in that morning and shared it with my students. I was like, guys and gals, aliens may very well be real. And they're like, what? Yeah, I said, and I don't know why I sounded like a Southern Baptist preacher. Ladies and gentlemen, let mm-hmm. me share with you the good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, well. But I was like, yeah, this is coming from a government agency. It's an article that was mm-hmm. put in the New York Times. You know, this isn't some crackpot yep. named Jimmy in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. I was there on my boat and I saw it. It was not that. <laughs> yeah, it was not boat. that. Uh-huh. I was like, no. so it was interesting to me because I, I made the connection to the story that you had told me. Yeah. And I was like, I got to have him tell yeah. that because I don't know if you guys are into UFOs or any of that doesn't mean that there's aliens, but that definitely means there's some stuff out there. Yeah. We have no clue. Uh, and if you haven't, yeah, you're, you're no exactly Fraber, right. definitely uh, tune into Joe Rogan and listen to that podcast. But Dusty's got to share his story yeah. too. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm going to begin this by saying this is, this happened, uh, golly, this is pre 2001, uh, workups, uh, were, coincidentally in the Bermuda Triangle, which I've been in quite often. And you nine times out of ten, you don't even know you're in the Bermuda Triangle unless somebody says, hey, you know, in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Um I also want to preface this by saying there's a lot of things that the military have that if if you knew about it, you would be like, why do we ever worry about them being not about another country. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's stuff out there that we have that's just absolutely incredible. There's technologies that we have. And, and I want to uh, preface the whole story that I'm getting ready to tell that there is crazy stuff out there that we have that if you, if you knew that we had it, you would basically perfectly relax about a, a lot of other countries. There's, I was saying that there's an aircraft that can, with a flip of a switch, turn out the electrical grid in a, in a major city. Um, or that same aircraft can pick up your cell phone, your phone, boom, and go, oh, okay, that's where, that's where you are, and, and track you right down to your house or right down to where you were actually moving. Um, there's just an incredible amount of stuff that's out there. So when, when it's not to say that I've seen everything, but I've seen a lot. I'll put it to you that way, and a lot of things that our capabilities are. And when you see something that is above our capabilities or that freaks everybody out, it tends to stick with you forever. So there we were <laughs> in, the, uh, um, in the Caribbean, uh, like I said, coincidentally, in the Bermuda Triangle. We 
back in the late 90s, uh, 2000s, we used to bomb uh, an island in Puerto Rico called Vieques. I don't know if you ever heard of that or it was a big hubbub. There was an actual, there was an actual Puerto Rican person that was killed, a police officer or a guard at the base. They we had this whole Island that was basically mapped out and we just, all we did was fly missions over it and training missions and blew it up, just drop bombs. Uh, it was a thing for uh, pilots to be able to learn how to drop bombs and strafe and do all that stuff that they have to do. And uh, uh, it's shut down now. Uh, they don't use that Island anymore, but, we were sailing back North. Um, I don't know how far away from Puerto Rico we were, but we were pretty, we were out far from land and I was working on something called a surface warfare device, which is a, it's a pin that I could wear on my uniform that told everybody that saw me in uniform that I knew everything there was to know about my ship. You have to stand all these watches. You have to get signed off a watch is a station on the ship, like whether it's steering or lookout or whatever. And you don't always have to stand them, but it's, you can go get the signature, but it's one of those things that helps you get more signatures when you actually stand watches that are, you wouldn't normally be trained Mm -hmm. for. Does that make sense? Like you're doing other people's jobs just to learn what they do. People appreciate it. And so anyway, so I'm standing in aft lookout. And so the aft lookouts on the back end of the ship and you could actually stand on this, and this is on an aircraft carrier, so you could actually stand, look down, and see what we call the baffles, which is uh, the waters being churned up by the screws of the ship. It's very late at night, two or three in the morning. I'm standing back there with another, uh, uh, what's called a bosun's mate. He's an undesignated seaman. And you wear these things on your heads called sound power telephone. It's uh, like, you know, the cans mm-hmm. that you talk into when we were kids with the rope attached to it? Same concept. That's how you actually talk on a ship, sound power telephone. And so we're standing back there. And the reason we're standing back there, because if something comes along like a submarine or another ship, that's not supposed to be there, they don't pick up on radar. They pick it up by eyesight and we call it in and tell them, Hey, there's something out there. Um, well, we'd been out there for a while and suddenly a light comes down the port side of the ship, which is the left side of the ship goes through the baffles and then up the starboard side, which is the right side of the ship. And it was a greenish glowing light, pretty big. Um, I can't really tell you how big it was. It was, it was large. It was a large light and we both saw it. And I said, did you see that? And he's like, yeah, I saw that. And I said, what was that? He's like, I have no idea. And we're clipping along pretty fast. I think we're probably doing an excessive 10 knots and um, whatever it was for something to go through the baffles is, is pretty hard to do. It would be like a, like a water balloon trying to float in air. (laughs) It's heavier Mm -hmm. than the air. So it's being, there's a lot of air being churned up in the water. So something, something going through the baffles of a ship is not a normal thing. It would be chopped up and moved around and flipped upside down and whatever else. It just usually wouldn't make it. If, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So that light goes through. And I, I looked at him and said, you saw that, right? He said, yeah. I said, what was that? And we're talking about it. And as we're talking about it, it comes down the starboard side, which again is the right side, goes through the baffles and goes up port side. I said, we should probably call that in. And he goes, yeah. And so we get on the sound power and telephone. We call a bridge and tell him, hey, there's a light in the water. 
that just went through the water is is somebody on the flight deck shining a light down from the flight deck. He said, that's negative. Nobody's up there. I said, okay, well, we just saw a light come down the port side, go through the baffles, and then up the starboard side, and then reversed itself and did it again. There's a pause. He said, stand by, we're sending somebody in. So the chief of the watch, which, by the way, is 2.30 in the morning. He's asleep. They wake up this chief, which is an uh, uh, E7 in the Navy. Pretty high rank, but he's enlisted. He comes down. He's like, what are you idiots talking about? You know, chiefs are always all crusty. They're like, Ugh. If you've seen uh, Men of Honor, it's Robert De Niro's character is, is a master chief. So if you can imagine that guy, uh, that's about the way they all are. What are, we, what are you retards talking about? Really? Sir, you, you, sir, you can't see the armor. I don't care. I'm sorry, but that's probably <laughs> no, what he would have said. I like it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we tell him what it was. And he was like, he looks at us like we're idiots, which is, we, I mean, this is what happened. And so he tends to go on this like diatribe about how uh, we're bothering him, <laughs> basically. I, I'm, he's telling us about, you know, when to report the right thing and what we're supposed to report and why am I here? Why is there two people on watch and yada, yada, yada. And I was explaining, I'm working on my surface warfare. And he's like, who are you? And I'd explain who I was. Cause you're on a 5,600 person ship. You're not going to meet everybody that's on that ship, by the way, you're not going to yeah. know all the whole crew. And uh, so I told him who I was, who my chief was, yada, yada, yada. And right when he's right in the middle of basically yelling at us, for waking him up at two 30 in the morning, the light comes down the port side and does the exact same thing again. At which point he stops and goes, is that what you guys saw? Yeah. He goes twice. Said, yeah. He goes, okay, hold on. <laughs> so, now he, so now he's like, what the hell was that? Cause it's just not something that you would see. It's not, it did. I've seen dolphins mm. in the water. Dolphins glow in the water from like the bacteria that's in the water. Yeah, they the got what are phosphorescent bioluminescent algae. Yeah, bioluminescent stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. It didn't look like that. Uh, it was a different color anyway. It, and so he gets on the on the headset. He calls it in. At which point, an officer of the deck comes down, uh, who was the uh, part in this. But he's called the ass nav. He's the assistant <laughs> navigator. We call him ass. Uh, you call the, the navigator, the gator, he's the gator. And you call the, the assistant navigator, the ass nav, which he hates that term. Most of them do. So he comes down and he's like, what's going on? And we explain the whole thing. At which point he tells, he gets ready to start laying into the chief about calling him down. And, uh, this all takes place by the way, over about an hour period. This was not like a matter of seconds that this happens. And so, because it takes a while to get people riled up and get to this point in the ship, it's pretty far walk. Uh, you know, if you're familiar, you know, being at the dealership, this would be the equivalent of walking from the Subaru store to the Volkswagen store. Yeah. Yes, pretty big ship, okay? So, um, so he gets over there, and, and he's going on about all of this stuff. And uh, he nothing's happening, and then he decides he's going to wait there for a couple minutes, and then right right in the middle of this, man, here it goes. It does it again. Comes down the, the starboard side and through the baffles and goes up port side, stops, 
right near one of our sponsons, which is a, a jetting off of the ship where the Sea Whiz, the big gun that shoots from the, the missiles you've probably seen in a movie, it stops right about there and it's pacing us. It's keeping up with us. And like I said, I don't know how fast we were going, but we were probably plus 10 knots, which is pretty fast. Uh, if you imagine this big uh, four acre piece of machinery doing over 10 knots, you know, as fast as what a, a small boat would do. Um, and it paces us. It goes back into our baffles. We're all watching it. Paces us in our baffles and then goes faster than we're moving away from the horizon towards the horizon. Now the vertical horizon at sea level is 12 miles. So if you're sitting at sea level and you look out and that line where the sky touches the water is 12 miles out. I can't tell you how fast it was going, but it got 12 miles in a hurry underwater. So this thing goes towards the horizon faster than anything that, that I know of. Um, obviously not faster than a fighter jet or anything like that, but imagine whatever this was, was in the water and was clipping along quick. So the end of the story is we're all brought upstairs. We're all sitting in a room we call the blue tile, which is where the admiral goes. The assistant navigator, the chief, me, and the guy on watch, they actually relieved us with somebody else. We had to fill out what we said, and then we had to sign a thing that said we wouldn't talk about it while we were on the ship. And we never did. The <laughs> <laughs> rest of the time, because we didn't want people thinking we were nuts. We would yeah. pass each other in the chow, like I would be in the chow line, and that chief would walk in, and he goes, Doc. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> just like, <slipped> away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in aliens as in the same way that everybody else sees things like this. Mm. Do I believe that there's stuff out there that I can't explain? Absolutely. Do I think there's stuff out there that's probably not ours that I can't explain? Absolutely. I would love to know what was moving in that water that fast. That would be Oh, great. I also remember you telling me when the, uh, the ship was moving through ice, that oh, ice, that God. ice coming apart evidently sounds like no. women screaming. When <laughs> <laughs> the ice, we were in the North Atlantic and the ice, these icebergs would touch. And they'd scrape and they'd go, ah, and you're like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in a damn horror movie. This is yeah, terrible. Sounds awful. It's like sirens from way back. You know, uh, that's uh, probably shit, dude. The fact that you say that is probably that connection. Maybe yeah, that's what OC sea travelers heard. And they yeah. were like, yep, there's evil women out there singing to me, trying to lure I, me I'm in. I'm telling you, it is the worst sound. I mean, you can hear them smack. You can hear them crack. You can hear the cracks. Um, sounds like some of them are big enough to sound like thunder. They say, I've never heard it that loud. Um, but I've heard ice hit ice. And it's um, interesting story. Dude. When you told me that, I was like, I was right there with you. I was like, and then what happened? Yeah. Con continue. So but I've heard, I've heard so many stories, <clears throat> you know, my wife's in aviation and, uh, when this whole thing with Captain Fravor came out, I said, Hey, have you ever talked to pilots that seen stuff like this? She goes, Oh yeah, they see stuff like that all the time. I said, do they, do they report it? She goes, hell no. <laughs> she goes, I don't want people to think they're nuts or drunk. That's, that's crazy, man. And so if you think about that, how many pilots that are out there that see this type of stuff that just go, do you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Are we going to talk about it? No. We're not, not a chance in hell, no. Not a That's, chance. Thanksgiving. Chance. Thanksgiving's already weird enough. I, Uncle, tell us the story about the UFO. God damn it. Yeah. Not again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, man, if you could. Yeah. I, I just. 
here, here's what I'm trying to tell you. For people out there that don't believe that there is crazy stuff out there, or don't believe that um, if you have somebody like Commander Fravor, don't take me. I'm just, I was just some basic squid. I'm not anything important. But you got this guy that's a trained naval aviator. 20 plus years in the military that knows how to fly everything that's out there and, and is trained to identify other aircraft to make sure that it's not something that he can shoot down or something he should shoot down to see something and go, what the hell is that? That shouldn't be a thing. That shouldn't be out here. What is this? But you should probably think there is something out there that people can't explain. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. Hold your kids close tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Watch the fourth kind and then put them to bed. Um, man, I appreciate you sitting down with me. I love you, buddy. Uh, you're one of my favorite you, people. And uh, I hope people find this entertaining. I hope that you know people find the, uh, the heartfelt conversation that you gave to me um, useful in some way. Uh, sure. and, uh, and then our ramblings about UFOs, hopefully entertaining. Yeah, the one thing, man, I'm telling you, this this whole concept of what you got here is it's beautiful, man. You know, I, I'm uh, full disclosure. I'm I'm a Christian, and I believe that a tenement of that is to not be judgmental. Um, that's something I know that my faith struggles with, and people that practice my faith struggle with quite a bit. And we've had this conversation. But if there's one thing you can take away from from this podcast and any conversation that you have, is to enter any conversation as a judge free, judgment free zone before anything. Hear them out. Find something you like about that person. Doesn't matter if you don't like everything. Just find something you like. It worked for us. I mean, you're pretty different on a lot of stuff, man, but it does, man. It's so funny. He's one of my best friends. So we're proof that, you know, an atheist and a Christian can get along. (laughs) Uh, What, what, when we initially met, I was a liberal and he was probably more, uh, right side of libertarian. I think I pulled him center a libertarian a little bit. Yeah. I'm I'm a very liberal libertarian (laughs) and he pulled me full libertarian. So, yeah. You talk know, to it, people and change change who you are. I mean, that's what interactions are for. Listen to each other and and grow to, as we people. Need to, we need to have that conversation. We need to we need to do a podcast based on that about how you and I that first conversation that we had, and you're like, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true, man. It's like, oh Jesus, this guy. Yeah. So. But All right, man. I love I, you, buddy. It's good to see you. It really is. Love you too, man. And and uh, we'll get together. Maybe do this uh, again soon, and we get some graphs, and your wife can explain the tic tac. But I'm telling. <laughs> she wait a minute. What are we talking about? Oh, the flying tic tacs, not yeah. the no, not yeah. the no. Oh, okay, good. At a later date. All right, brother. Uh, I'll talk <laughs> at you later, man. Bye, buddy. Bye. <laughs>